Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So we've all experienced and and committed um, false affirmations at times. And uh, I know you all have done this because I've, I've been at the grocery store when you've all gone there and run into somebody you haven't seen for six to eight months. And I hear the conversations and I commit the conversations. So great to run into you. I'm so glad to see you. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. You know, this is just great. But the reality is, if, if you really wanted to meet the person and, and chat with them, you probably have their number and could talk with them and could, com- and could communicate with them. But, but because you're there in the, in the, uh, in the grocery store, you're going to be nice and you're going to say, oh, I just, this was so wonderful. Um, but it, it, there's a bit of a, maybe a little bit of a false affirmation, false confession there of if you really were so glad to see a person or cared to see them, you'd call or text them anytime. We're confessing one thing with our mouths while our hearts are kind of far from believing it. We're actually thinking, I just wanted to run to the store and grab something real quick and then get home. And now I've got caught up in a conversation. Maybe I'm the only horrible person. I'm getting lots of strange stares, but I'm the only horrible person in here, I guess, who does that. But, but we also, you know, you make a false deeds at times where you do, a, you do something you should do. You do a good deed for someone and you're not going to be recognized, you know, or whatever. And, and you do it because it's the right thing to do, but your heart the whole time is annoyed about it or isn't really behind it, doesn't really want to do it, is annoyed at the other person that you're having to do it. And so there's a false deed there at some point where you've done this righteous thing possibly even, but your heart really wasn't in in it at all. Well, this morning we are dealing with, I mean, arguably one of the the toughest texts in Scripture. Just absolutely terrifying text of Scripture. You know, it's people talk about in, in, in liberal progressive Christianity, they'll oftentimes talk about uh, that we love Jesus because of his Sermon on the Mount is just such good teaching. We just love, you know, and, and basically what they mean is they like things like the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Or Matthew 7, 1, you know, do, do not judge others lest you be judged. And they, they, they'll cherry pick a few verses. But to actually love the Sermon on the Mount is, is, has its terrifying moments. And we talked about this earlier when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, right? When it says that uh, don't not, and not only should you not commit murder, but that if you look at your brother with anger, that you are guilty of murder. And, and talking about uh, adultery and it's saying if you just have, look at someone with a lustful intent, you're guilty of, 
of adultery. And Jesus is saying, you know, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, do these severe things to get rid of sin. And the difficulty oftentimes with this Sermon on the Mount is not understanding it. (laughs) That's not the difficulty here. Like, I wonder what Jesus means by this. It's actually really clear. The tough part of it is that it's so clear and it's a really tough, scary text. This is a warning, not of the trouble out there. Last week or two weeks ago, we're talking about, right, the false prophets, these ones who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And beware of those who would lead you astray. And Jesus is warning of the trouble that's out there. This week, it's a little closer to home. It's not of the trouble that's out there, but of the trouble that's right in here inside of ourselves. We are easily misled by keeping a couple of get out of jail free cards in our back pocket. You know, that's a Monopoly reference, right? And it's maybe most of you play Monopoly anymore. Like you have this, I, I get out of jail free card. I've got a couple of them in my back pocket here when it comes to my walk with Jesus. And one of the cards is that though I didn't do what I should have done, you maybe have heard this, I didn't, I didn't do the right thing, but my heart was in the right place. We'll say something along those lines that I, 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 didn't, I didn't do the right thing, but my heart was in the right place. Or the other one might be that though we didn't really want to do it, we did the right thing. I mean, so isn't that good enough that our hearts aren't in the right place, but we have no authentic love for Jesus. At least we did the right thing. And these are two typical thoughts when it comes to how we think God ought to judge us. J.C. Ryle In his comment on this passage, he says, The Lord Jesus winds up his Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application. He turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. And Lloyd-Jones talks about this just gut-wrenching reality here, is is revealing to us the dangers of self-deception and self-delusion. That there are these people who at one point in the final judgment will stand before Jesus and they will have confessed right doctrine. Lord, Lord. They will have done mighty works in the name of Jesus. They will have done great mighty deeds. And yet Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you, which is to condemn them to hell. Startling, startling words, right? So our big idea from this morning is simply this. Right speech and right action will not replace true affection for Jesus. Right speech, right action will not replace true affection for Jesus. It's a terrifying text. And part of our handling of Scripture accurately is to let terrifying text be terrifying. Like the goal of reading your Bible is not to skip the scary parts and get to the only the parts you like to read. No, this is, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, which is a big fancy word to say every word of God's word is true and inerrant and infallible and inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and error, for training in righteousness, as Timothy 3.16 tells us, that this is, that what is, to our job here in this text is to not, let, not try to find a way for it to not be terrifying, but let it do its work. In our world today, entertainment and frivolity are the choice meals of the day. 
there seems to be no time for serious reflection and sobering realities. And so if we can't gather at times on a Sunday morning and let that be a moment for sobriety under the teaching of God's word, then I don't know when we're going to do it. This, this is our chance to sit under the weight of the text. We're meant to be contemplative people. And God has given us a brain not to work tirelessly to put it to sleep, but to put it to use. And scripture this morning is pointing us to things that we should think on. Jesus points us to serious truths we ought to consider. So in the text, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So one thing we probably should say up front, it is impossible to get into the kingdom of heaven unless you say, Lord, Lord. <laughs> there's, a, there's an underwritten assumption here that if you're even going to attempt to get into the kingdom of heaven, confessing Jesus as Lord is a prerequisite. Uh, Romans 10, 9, unless you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, if you do those things, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9 says. And so a confession of Jesus as Lord absolutely critical in entering into the kingdom of heaven. We, all of us, all mankind, we sit under the just condemnation and wrath of God because of our sin. We have rebelled ever since Adam and Eve, our first parents, and we have continued the rebellion against him as Lord of the universe and spend a ton of our energy, if we're honest, trying to elevate ourselves into lordship, <laughs> which is, which is, uh, which is, uh, what is the pirate term? I can't think of it. Mutiny. It is mutiny. We're trying to take, we're trying to dethrone God and put ourselves on the throne. And the, as a result, we sit then under God's just wrath and judgment. Yet what God has done in his mercy and grace is not wiped us out, not just blown up the world and forget the whole mess. He sent his son right into the world who lived the righteous life we should have lived who died the death that we deserve, so that everyone sitting under the wrath of God who would confess the just penalty that they deserve and look to Jesus, the one who took it for them, could be forgiven of their sins and made righteous in their sight and then confess him as Lord of the universe. I'm not Lord, Jesus is. Everyone who then does call upon the name of the Lord, looking to him, is then saved. It is a prerequisite. You will not get into the kingdom of heaven unless you confess Jesus as Lord. But confessing Jesus as Lord according to Jesus is not just like the magic mantra, open sesame into the kingdom of heaven. Like it's so, okay, we've got a written prayer. You've, you've all been to churches where you've been to revival meetings or whatever, they've done this. We've all got the sinner's prayer out here and we're going to lead you up front and you're going to read through the sinner's prayer and bada bing, bada boom, what, you know, like magic, like we pull the rabbit out of the hat, you're made it into the kingdom of heaven because you went through the actions, you spoke the words. That is not what, what Jesus is talking about. That is not what salvation is. This is not just a simple saying of the words giving a mental assent to the truth of the divinity of, and lordship of Jesus, that is not enough. And we know this because this is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's, it's startling to think about um, th th that there, is, there are two ways. Well, there, are two way, there are two pieces of false evidence that are addressed here. And the first one is a false belief. Two pieces of false evidence. 
The first is false belief. There are those who will say, Lord, Lord. What's startling about this is that it's true. Like, they're saying true things. They are saying Jesus. They are calling him Lord, Lord. They have the right doctrine, but there is no real impact in their lives. We can see Jesus says, no, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. These, these individuals, they give mental assent. They possibly even agree with the claims to the divinity of Christ, to, the, to his teachings and to his lordship, but it ends at right confession. It never goes any further into their hearts or into their lives. And the way you can tell that it hasn't gone any farther into their hearts is because it hasn't gone out into their lives. There is no impact on their life. Calling Jesus Lord is absolutely critical. But a mere recognition of his lordship is not the same as genuine faith and trust and treasuring of him as Lord and Savior. In the parallel teaching section in Luke chapter 6, verse 48, Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Plain, maybe the same sermon, we don't know, just gathering the same sort of topic. You can hear it here. Luke 6, 48, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, right? And do not do what I tell you. So something important is being said here. We know for certain that Christianity is not gained by what you do, right? Christianity is not gained by what you do. This is not, this is not here is the list of 10 things that you've got to go out and perform. And if you meet the litmus test, then you get into heaven. We know that Christianity is not a salvation by works. We know passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Which says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's not of your own doing, so that anyone may boast. It is a gift of God. We know that clearly salvation is grace. It is a gift of God through faith. However, just as certain as that is that once Christianity is gained by God's grace through faith, once you have been granted new life, once you have been brought from death into life, it affects everything you do. (laughs) Because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 goes on, For you are uh, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we know that the works do not make you a Christian. But once having your eyes open to see Jesus, it can't help but influence what you do. It, it cannot help but, but make, have application and implication in your lives. Now in Christ Jesus... We were made alive, though we were once dead, and therefore we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as Ephesians 4, 1 says. So within this warning is a plea to not just trust your knowledge about God. How, how well can you answer the multiplication, multiple choice test about the doctrines of God? Do you know of the Trinity? You know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How many catechism questions can you get right? Who made you? God made me. Why? What else did God make? God made all things. How far can you get in the catechism question? And you have it all. You've got right knowledge, good stuff. But there's, there is, this is a warning to not just trust in knowledge about God, but actually knowing him. There is a distinction there. There is a difference between, I know to call him Lord, Lord, yet my heart can be far from him. 
Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, there is, there is the danger of trusting your faith instead of trusting Christ, of trusting your belief without becoming truly regenerate. There are people who have been brought up in a Christian home and atmosphere who have always heard these things and in a sense have always believed and said the right things, but they still may not be Christians. I just want to let that sit. <laughs> it's a terrifying text. But Jesus says it for a reason. This is not Darren making this up to make you all like, what in the world, how dark are we going to get here? This is Jesus bringing this up that we ought to consider. Do I just know right things about God or do I know him? Do I know right things about Jesus or do I know Jesus? Am I truly trusting him as my Lord and Savior and treasure over everything such that there's no aspect of my life that is not his? That's what it means to have Jesus be Lord is that you're not in charge of your life anymore. He is. So it's easy to say, oh, Lord, Lord, while I go off and live my own life and do my own thing. It's a different thing to say, Lord, Lord, and mean it because you know him as Lord. And this is the warning. Do we simply know things about Jesus, know right things to confess about Jesus, or do we know Jesus? So the first piece of false evidence is, is empty confession, false confession. The second piece of false evidence is false action. This is amazing. <laughs> I mean, this is just, it's, it's terrifying as well. Because verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? And Jesus doesn't say, you're lying, you didn't do that. Yeah, that isn't the problem. <laughs> These people did mighty works. They cast out demons. They, they, they prophesied. They, they gave the word. They, they communicated truth about God to their community. They prophesied. And yet, they had all of these right actions, and yet they were far from him. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. There are those who have what we and they themselves would consider as a really impressive ministry reputation, possibly. Look at all the great things they're doing for Jesus. Look at all the accolades they have. Look at all the education they have. Look at all the, the difference they make. And it, it, the day is going to be, the, the final day is going to reveal all hearts where there will be those who we would say, look at all the incredible things they've done, but their hearts are far from him. They may have performed many good works and miraculous deeds even, and yet on the final day when Jesus shows up as judge, which he will, he will tell them to depart from him, that he never knew them. There is a ton of weight behind this reality. The problem, is, the problem truly is not that they didn't know Jesus, they didn't know about Jesus, but that they didn't know him. Jesus says, and, and Jesus further, it's, we could spend more time on this passage where he says, he'll declare to them, I never knew you. And we could really dig into deep uh, the, the, the theological implications of what it is that Jesus doesn't know them. It's saying, you're not a part of my family. Because obviously Jesus knows everyone. Jesus is God. He does know everyone. 
there is not a single person in human existence that escapes God's notice. Where Jesus is like, I don't even know you. I didn't even know you were real. <laughs> what? I don't even know. You know. It's not that kind of an, I never knew you. He's saying, I never knew you. We weren't family. We weren't, I never, I never had a relationship with you. I never knew you. We were never together. That's what he's saying. He never knew them. So those who are truly his people are those who are known by him, who have not just a, a head knowledge about him, know right things about him, but it's good to know right things about him. But it is not the end of the story. Not just those who do mighty works for him. Though it's good to have a life and, do, and to do righteous deeds, it's a good thing. But do we actually know him? Does he actually know us? Do we actually have a relationship with him? So that's the text. It does end in their judgment. There will be those who will be departing, will be cast out into utter weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, that do not know Jesus. So what about us? If we go to application here. What do we do with a passage like this? I mean, how do we let this hit us? And I think we must take it seriously and hear it as a call for a heart check. Remember, this is a sermon largely to his, to his people. He is, he's called the disciples to him. There are those who are listening in, but this is to his people. What do we do with a warning like this? We need to hear it as a call for a heart check. What are you leaning upon? for your right standing with God. What are you leaning upon? You're all here at church on a Sunday morning. Fall back is a little easier to get here. If it's spring forward, then we'll talk. Like if you have to get up earlier and then still show up, that's a really impressive deed. But, you know, so here you are performing a righteous deed, we could say, in the eyes of our culture and our community. What are you leaning upon for your place with him? Maybe you're someone who's like, you, you're, you've got your Bible doctrine down. You've been in Sunday school. You know all, you've, you've read lots of books and you've, you really understand lots of interesting theories and, con, and systematic theologies about God. And you've got the gospel down and you know all these things about him. But are we leaning on those for our place with him? Are we leaning on our right belief about him, on our good works for him? Or are we simply leaning upon him? Not our thoughts about him, not our works for him, but him. Jesus is a person. This is not just a message we believe, it's a person we believe. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They, we not just believe things about them, we believe them. We believe him, our God. And so, while we're leaning upon, we ought to, on him. We ought to check our hearts. Do thoughts come into our minds like this? You know what's really impressive? When you plant a church for God. I mean, you know, to be in the middle of nowhere, and I, I'm so serious about Jesus, I'll start new, unique churches to try to honor his name. There's a great deed to, like, really lean upon. Hey, look at us. Do I lean upon, um, you know, I was part of a big missional movement. You know, we really, we walked around town and prayed for every house in town. We, we honestly, we, 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 uh, we, we try to create circles of accountability to get the gospel here and there and, and done. And I'm, I'm not saying these as negative things. I think these are great things. But when they become the things that we lean upon, we're in a dangerous place. We do not lean upon our right belief about him or lean upon our deeds about him. We lean upon him. Is the gospel itself what you lay your life upon? Not your coming to him 
but his rescue of you. What ought we then to take comfort in? Well, Luke chapter 10, if you've got your Bibles out, we'll finish on this passage. Luke chapter 10, sorry, get your pocket, get your, get your phone back out, your Bible back out. Luke chapter 10, the disciples here, this is verses 17 through 20. They sent out the 72 and, and tells them to go out. And you can see that at the beginning of chapter 10. They come back, verse 17, the 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, they're just, they're, they're flabbergasted. They've gone out and Jesus, they've been empowered by Jesus to work mighty deeds, casting out demons. They're, 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 God, I can't believe you would do this. That This is incredible. Look what we can do. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you a new authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. This is awesome. Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And he pushes upon them. They've got him as Lord, Lord, they're doing mighty things. There's all this, and there's this incredible movement that's going to come out of the ministry of Jesus. The church is going to be born such that people 2,000 years later are going to be gathered across the globe in worship of Jesus by the work he's done through his people. And he says, don't rejoice in that, that you made some difference for me or whatever, or you were used to do it. Rejoice that you're mine. Rejoice that you're mine. Jesus' disciples were excited over the things that they were empowered to do for him, but they found rebuke from Jesus. Instead, he encourages them, don't rejoice in what you've done for me, but rejoice that you are with me. Rejoice in Jesus for who he is and what he has done for you. Not rejoicing in your supposed good choice to trust in him, but rejoicing in his great mercy that brought you from death to life. We're, we're, you can read 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, when you get home. We're not going to go through it this morning. But one of the uh, admonitions that Peter does, and I think this text here in, in Matthew gives us, it makes this plea with his people. Make, be all the more diligent. Make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Make sure that you're treasuring the right things. Jesus God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and His activity in your life. The point in this text is that if you are a Christian, in the life of a Christian, and the one who is trusting and treasuring Jesus above all else, is not a cause to despair when we read this text, but a, but a cause and a, and a conviction and a calling for us to sink our hearts deep, not in our own knowledge of Him or our deeds for Him, but to sink our hearts deep in the love of Jesus for his people, who he came to save out of their sins, who he came to bring, give them, bring them into his kingdom by his grace and his mercy. We do not lean upon our, our right beliefs, our doctrine, our words. We don't believe or lean upon our deeds in the world. We lean upon him and his grace and his mercy that has saved us. Let's pray. God, I, I, I ask that as we go through a heavy text here this morning. I want it to do its work. I don't want to shortcut the Holy Spirit. I don't want to shortcut you and what you're trying to do in our hearts. That God, there's a great application. There's a great rebuke here. There's a life-giving rebuke. And I, I know it's, 
not popular in our culture to think of rebuke as ever being life-giving. But there's a life-giving rebuke here for us as Missio Church, for us as your people, to not lean upon having all the right boxes checked in our doctrinal bag, which we want to have. Not lean upon our, our deeds in our world and our care for our community and seeking to love our neighbor as ourselves. All things which we should do, none of them being things we should lean upon. What is of utmost importance is that we would be a people who have intimacy with you. That Father, we, and we, so we pray this morning, convict us of areas of our lives where we have looked to things other than you for our joy and our salvation. God, may we have hearts that treasure not what we think about you or what we've done for you, but treasure you for who you are and all that you've done for us and rescuing us from our sins through the work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.